up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to reach tall buildings in a single bound. This amazing stranger the Man of Steel. Who are you? A friend. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's, it's... Superman, 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 Superman. This looks like a job for Superman. Superman Forever Radio, the weekly podcast devoted to the Man of Steel. Welcome to Superman Forever Radio, episode 59. Wow, I am your mild-mannered host, J. David Weeder, and I'm kind of shocked. I felt like the, the 50s went by so fast. Feels like just... Yesterday I was doing episode 50. But either way, this is the penultimate installment in our Superman Forever Goes to the Movies commentary series for the month of February 2013, if you're listening to this from the future. And this time around, we have All-Star Superman on deck. Um, Unlike the last two, which were the Public Enemies and Apocalypse, I didn't really go back and reread all 12 issues of All-Star Superman. A little too dense, maybe? Uh, but it is what it is. Um, this is kind of one of those bittersweet movies, and I'm going to talk more about that as we get into the actual content. Um, next time around, we'll be doing Superman vs. the Elite, and then it'll be back to business as usual. So, prepare for that. And then, coming this summer, a lot more stuff and things. I'm so articulate. But I don't have a lot in the way of preamble, because most of my, my comments, I'm going to say for the commentary... Because, you know, it is a commentary, so you comment in it. See what they did there? But I am going to segue to a promo in just a moment. As usual, when we come back, I'll be counting down from five, and on go, we'll watch the movie. You'll want to pop this DVD in, or Blu-ray, and make sure you get past the ratings page again, which is its own chapter. So you'll want to be queued up on 0000 on the movie proper. And then we will jump into All-Star Superman right after this promo. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Cleveland, Ohio, was not spared of the ravages of the Great Depression. In a time of fear and confusion, a character emerged that would entertain and inspire millions of children and adults alike. He began not as flesh and blood, but as a simple line drawing. His comic book adventures thrilled millions around the world. The magic of radio gave to his name a breathless signature and sound. Then with television came a whole new generation to idolize his exploits. In the 70s, the world believed a man could fly. In the 80s, he was reborn in the comics, and the 90s saw his death, rebirth, and marriage. 
In the 21st century, he returned to the big screen and saw his origin changed and retold on several occasions. Through the decades, he has gone by many names. The Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton, the Man of Steel. His strength is incredible. His name is legendary. His battle is never ending. Faster than a speedy bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. My name is Michael Bailey. I host an internet radio show called Views from the Long Box. Superman is my favorite character of all time, and in 2013, he is turning 75. Because of this, a large portion of the episodes this year will be about the Man of Steel in a series I'm calling Superman, Superman at 75, the celebration, the celebration of a legend. legend. I'm going to mark Superman's birthday in fine style by examining all aspects of the character's history, from the comics, to the movies, to the television series, and beyond, both alone and with the best and brightest of the podcasting world. It may not be every episode, but the bulk of views in 2013 will be all about the Man of Steel. He is the first and greatest superhero of them all, and he deserves no less. Superman at 75, the celebration of a legend. A series within a series, and the biggest birthday card a fan can give his favorite hero, only at Views from the Long Box. Views from the Long Box is a Fortress of Bailey-Tude production. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and for this series, over at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, so I have my DVD queued up to 0000, as I mentioned. Make sure it is on the movie proper and not the rating screen, which is PG-13 for What Does the Box Tell Us? Sequences of action and violence. Language including brief innuendo and some sensuality. I just want to know what this sensuality is. Anyway, as usual, I'm going to count down from 5 to 1 and then on go... We will hit play. So five, four, three, two, one, go. And we are fading up from black as usual on our Warner Brothers premiere. I'm not going to repeat myself that they're going away. I'm trying to remember who did the music for this. I believe it was Christopher Drake again. Let's find out. This was, as I'm pulling that up. This was a movie, it was Christopher Drake, by the way, that when they announced it, it made perfect sense, and at once, no sense at all. Because looking at the material they did before, they did a very condensed death in return. I was relieved when I, when I saw the origin was represented. 
It was one of those origins when I did, way back when, I did an episode about what must an origin contain. This was sort of the template. But adapting six issues of a comic book series, especially as sparse as the Jeff Loeb issues were, made sense. Loosely adapting the death story made sense. Uh, New Frontier, a little bit different, but they did a good job with it. This was a very densely packed 12-issue miniseries that went bi-monthly. And I know a lot of people got it in trade form. I actually got it in issue form. The reason I stopped is the whole Doom Planet, Desperate Scientist, Last Hope, Kindly Couple Superman actually forms a haiku, which is something Lex Luthor mentions later on. And I think that was something that whizzed by. The, the book itself was very savvy. Most of the complaints were it's too Silver Agey, which ended up being my big draw to the book. It was something that I felt, unlike All-Star Batman and Robin, was worth the wait between between issues. Uh, we actually have Leo Quintum on board the solar thing. I don't remember him being on there. I'll have to double check the books later, which won't make much difference to this recording. Awesome. Frank Quitely and his style, I immediately said, no, they're not going to pull this off. <laughs> and they, they didn't, but they did something a little bit different. They had some really good moments like this one. And the look came off kind of anime-ish. Steve Lombard making his animated debut, to the best of my knowledge. I may be incorrect on that. So we have Christina Hendricks as Lois Lane and a cross-dressing Jimmy Olsen. Now in the comic, in the comic he mentions he was cross-dressing to get a story. Here, it's implied that he's not. Matthew Gray Goobler, another CSI alum. Uh, the second one we've seen so far. Ed Asner as Perry White, one of the most no-brainer casting choices in history. Perfect, perfect casting. The only other person who I would ca cast as Perry White would be Lane Smith, and that's not really going to work now that he has sadly passed away. And here we have Lex Luthor. I forgot how fast this moves. Because All-Star Superman as a miniseries was a very uncompressed and... Going back to my the point I was making originally was I didn't see how they could adapt this into a cohesive one-off movie where you could read it in one setting because the comic itself actually was a bunch of vignettes that did come together in the end. They kind of snowballed. Now, when Anthony LaPaglia was cast as Lex Luthor, it was something... The cast itself, when, I, when it was announced, when he started seeing it come out excited me because Trina Hendricks as Lois Lane seemed like a no-brainer La Paglia would have been an excellent Luthor it just felt like they they didn't do what I expected them to do because Lex Luthor La Paglia loses some of the I don't know coldness Of the, of the comic book, some of the snideness. And here they kind of, they botched Superman's 
big moment. You know, when he comes on the scene and says, I'm saving the day, which in the comic was exquisite. Here, not not that not that exquisite. Now, one of the reasons this movie gives me uh, mixed feelings, not only the off-and-on quality of it, um, is it was written by the late Dwayne McDuffie and actually came out, was released into stores the day McDuffie died. So my experience was... I was off work that day. I was working on posting some stuff for Superman Forever when I did more blogging on the on the site, which I'm pretty content to stick to the podcasting now. But it came across the news feeds that Dwayne McDuffie had died about maybe an hour or a little less later. You know, UPS man comes and drops off my pre-ordered copy. Which is odd because... I ordered it from Amazon, got it on the day it came out. And yet there are things that for whatever reason, when you try to or pre-order them, Amazon will tell you, well, we can't really get that to you until later, but this worked out well, uh, just in a sad way. And McDuffie really did do an excellent job given that he was essentially doing an impossible task of adapting this, this, uh, vignette-style series into a cohesive whole. But it moves so fast. Ditton... Ditton, James Ditton, who... He was on Desperate Housewives. I hadn't really seen him before. He has a great voice unto himself. And it's not a horrible, horrible Superman. But it's kind of lackluster. And I know what they were trying to do because in the in the comic, he, the characters had this weird euphoric, not aloof. I've gotten in trouble for calling it aloof. These are the characters have a deadpan almost reaction to things because they live in a world with Superman. They live in a world where there are villains all the time, and so things like you know monsters attacking the city that's Wednesday for them. So they can be very casual about the way they approach things. And Superman himself, I mean, he's seen he's seen some stuff, man. And we get a great Caesar's ghost expertly delivered by Ed Asner. It does feel like there are there are things you expect to be omitted that need to be omitted. But they omitted some things where I'm like, why would you do that? Like, for example, Clark being clumsy here. Maybe he's putting on, but you kind of miss that in his clumsiness, he was saving people, which was an interesting perspective that the book gave and kind of loses some of its punch here. LaPaglia being arrested or Luthor. I just I, that he there was a line omitted there. Where he said, "Before I do something terrible to Superman, I just lost some of the punch." Because Luthor in the comic was at his nastiest, um, say for maybe Superman, Batman generations. Just this absolute snide, horrid human being, remorseless to the end, well, almost the end. And here we actually do get him bumping the guy down to avoid this bridge collapsing which in the comic was 
an engine. And also the animation design loses some of what Quietly did that I thought was genius that kind of sold me on the series in that in his Clark Kent disguise, you know, he Superman kind of stoops, giving him a bit of a pot belly, changing his height and kind of making the Clark Kent Superman dynamic believable. Looking at it here, it's it's back to the standard Superman in a pair of glasses and a suit. And the odd thing is, Lois came through generally intact. And they will do scenes like her dropping the fruit. Now we're, at this point in the movie, we actually roll right into issue two. And we're actually ten minutes into the into the movie. And I remember how brisk this felt. And how happy I was in the comic and in the movie that they kept the classic Fortress of Solitude, like what we covered uh, a few episodes back. Giant yellow door, giant key. Almost. The weird thing about Quietly's Superman is I liked how it looked on the page for the most part. It wasn't a traditional Superman because I'm quite on record that Jose Garcia Lopez was my favorite design. But this wasn't a traditional Superman story. It was separated from not only continuity, but separated from the style of Superman that we had seen previously. It was a non-traditional Superman and yet absolutely traditional. It was a paradox almost. So Quietly's look fit what we were looking at with something outside of the way we normally perceive Superman, which fit this story. It kind of took you to a different place. See, I like the fantastical elements, this dwarf star key, these outside of the box. Now, a lot of times Grant Morrison can be very self-indulgent and All-Star Superman was no exception. And here we have the trophy room. We have the wax statues there, space shuttle, giant penny. We have the Titanic. There's his villains. There's the bottle city of Candor. Everything you expect, except that Jor-El and Lara aren't holding up a globe. Which I guess is a stupid gripe, but it is what it is. And... I'm always a little thrown off when the fortress has windows. Because if it's a citadel, it, should, it shouldn't have beautiful panoramic views. Odd that there's a shower room. I wonder if this fortress has a gym somewhere. Do you think do you think the fortress has Wi-Fi? Lois is updating her Facebook status. She's checking in on Git Glue. I would love to see that meme come through, kind of like the text uh, text from heroes. Yeah, I've got this on lock, Lois. That's the uh... Oh, he is macking. 
in in the context of the of the comic itself, the scene wasn't all that revolutionary. Because Lois, you know, she shows up at the fortress all the time. But the odd thing is, if you're watching it, it makes you think of Superman Doomsday if you're in the context of the animation. I'm easily distracted. Sorry about that. And they cut out the future Superman. So they actually fairly seamlessly removed a whole an entire subplot. Which unfortunately was a very emotional subplot. But if you're really working to if you're really working to do this cohesive narrative, it it doesn't it does lend itself very nicely to remove some of those vignette per type of uh, stories. It's weird they're actually using the correct color scheme, and they actually they kind of tip the hand more than the comic did with the gas going directly at Lois's face. I really did enjoy the idea of redesigning Superman's robots. Yeah. Oh, wait, it's a mannequin. That looks terrifying. I can see why Lois would kind of freak out a little. That's my porn stash, Lois. And suddenly I get a Dracula vibe. I'm going to be taking soil from Krypton so I can rest in Carfax Abbey. (laughs) And uh, kind of adding to this fantastical, larger-than-life element of Superman. The grandeur, as Jeff Loeb talked about why he was doing some of the designs in uh, Superman for All Seasons. They're having dinner aboard the Titanic. So you almost get this tall tale feeling from the story itself, from the comic more than the movie, because the movie moves past it pretty pretty fast. And here is Lois calling Superman out on lying to her, which is one of the hard-to-explain paradoxes of the existence of Superman. Having this secret identity, lying to those that are Supposedly closest to him. It's for your own good. Is it, though? Because it could be... It could be argued that Superman's secret identity protects himself more than anybody else. But that's a long, drawn-out conversation. I, uh... I think the... Formal Kryptonian dinner attire ends up being more awkward. Throw a hood on. <laughs> throw a hood on Superman. It's formal. And formal wear, it really doesn't work that way. Formal wear has layers and a protocol. Uh-oh, Lois is drinking a lot of water. She was just at a rave. She's at a rave, took a little ecstasy. She's got her glow sticks sitting somewhere in the background. Hendrix was an it was a choice that I, I guess all of, most of the casting were choices that made perfect sense and intrigued me about the adaptation, and they just didn't go through. 
Here we go. Now we missed a part of the t- the fortress tour that explained this gun, this kryptonite gun. Paranoia, paranoia, everybody's coming to get me. <laughs> Keep out, Superman at work. No girls allowed. With girls spelled G-U-R-L-S. Now she's breaking Superman's toys. That is not cool. That is not cool. You don't go into a man's abode and start breaking his stuff. And what could have been a very suspenseful scene fizzles. I say ironically as Superman stands up sizzling. Because fizzle rhymes with sizzle. See what I did there? (laughs) You malfunctioned. You got shot to bits, Superman. Call it what it is. They did keep an aspect of Quietly's design that I I really never quite uh, never quite warmed up to, which was the shorter tapered cape and the way it sits on his shoulders. And DC Direct actually made figures based on the comic, not not on the movie, of Lois and Superman. And, and there's a set where you can actually buy the Bizarro, which doesn't make an appearance in the movie. But you could actually buy the the version of Bizarro. Unfortunately, when it came time for me to think about buying that set, I already had the Superman and the Lois figure. It was just redundant. Which I hate when when they do that. It's the exact same figure that you have sitting on that shelf, but you get a bonus figure that's really just a re-sculpted head. So another Silver Age trope. Lois getting superpowers, and or Lana, and or Jimmy. But it's turned into something a little bit different here. Now we have Lex Luthor in the courtroom. This was a scene where LaPaglia completely fizzled out for me. Because the trial in the book really made Lex ooze evil. And I think Clancy Brown in this version would have just nailed that pompousness. So we've kind of set up that Superman is dying. I wish... I wish it had been set up a little bit more clearly that with this medium they actually had the chance to do an emotional reaction... Which they didn't take. Superman and Lois flying over Metropolis, which looks so extremely indistinct. In previous animations, there was something to make Metropolis look look like a, a special city. And here they just make it ho-hum. But now we have rolled into what would be All-Star Superman number three. Which was which is going to be very, very condensed. 
generic monsters. Kroll will eat your children. And we have Samson. Eat it. Eat it. And Samson is voiced by John DiMaggio, who is sadly underused here. John DiMaggio did the voice of Bender on Futurama. That's probably what he's best known for. He also did the Joker in Under the Red Hood, which was a different interpretation, but no less valid than Mark Hamill. Of course, another Silver Age throwback. I'm trying to see very quickly who did the voice. And not looking fast. Oh, Steve Bloom. Here we go. Oh, Cowboy Bebop. Let's see. A lot of anime style. Ah. Ah, Transformers Prime. He was Starscream. Okay. Now I'm on board. I think that voice acting is always unfairly judged. There is a, an art and a skill to it when it's done right. And John DiMaggio, um, Tara Strong actually makes an appearance somewhere in this movie, if I'm thinking correctly. Um, neat note, which makes sense while I'm looking that up about Tara Strong. Fred Tatasior actually was the voice of Kroll. He has actually been the one doing the voice of the Hulk in Avengers, um, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, as well, or Avengers Assemble, and he'll be doing it in Hulk's Agent of Smash. So we've got a Superman-Hulk connection. I dig that. And I wish I could explain a little bit better why my what my attraction is to this story. To the, It's just that the world is presented, the world of Superman is presented larger than life. Um, that living in a world that would possess something like Superman... You know, time travelers would pop up day to day. Monsters attacking the city? It's Thursday. And you would get used to something like that. That would be the reality where it's our fantasy. I want an Amish Abe Lincoln style beard. I wish I could grow one convincingly. Yeah, as I hear him speak, you can actually hear DiMaggio in there somewhere. DiMaggio is an an expert beatboxer, which I didn't know. Because I assumed when he did it on Futurama, it was synthesized or it was sound effects. And Lois is being a bit too much of a flirt. It's my birthday. I could do stuff. I'm going to knock you into next Tuesday. 
I don't like you, Samson. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you're going to be dead soon. Sorry about that. But voice acting, uh, there are people like DiMaggio and Tara Strong, who I didn't see on the cast list, so I stand corrected, who really can play this range of characters that are just unreal. Uh, kind of like live action actors. Uh, Gary Oldman would be a good example where he just blends into the he blends into the character convincingly and just morphs into something else. And here is Samson basically laying down the structure of the miniseries that it's going to be many, many tasks, which was based on Hercules, the 12 labors of Hercules. The Ultra Sphinx was a bit of a letdown. And if I'm thinking correctly, and I'm double checking my IMDb, the Ultra Sphinx is also, yes, it's also John DiMaggio. Once again, we have actors kind of playing themselves in the same scene, which you could do more with voice than you can with live action for obvious reasons. And unfortunately, they did keep the Frank Quitely costume aspect that the briefs become trunks. So Superman becomes a boxer man or a boxer brief man. It doesn't flatter the form. I would just send to the Phantom Zone for no reason. What's the air wind velocity of a maiden sparrow? Is it African or European? No! Thank you. I'll be here all week. This, uh, the Samaritan ad being played, uh, you know, superimposed, really, it, it talks down to the viewer. Quite a bit, actually. In the comic, you were kind of forced to realize it as the, you have to look relatively closely. Because the way they present it is, you see the paper blowing across the the ground at the very end. I don't know. I think canceling a riddle is pretty cool, but I'm not a physical person. Ooh. And we're going to get arm wrestling. It's over the top, folks. So Superman takes his hat and turns it backwards, and then it's over the top. Then he goes to take his son on a cross-country journey on his semi-truck. Actually, that'd be kind of cool. In that not-at-all kind of way. And they kind of softened this scene down quite a bit. Well, I say soften it because, yeah, we get this big blast, but it doesn't show their arms breaking. Uh, 
it feels like the animation when you compare it to something like uh, Apocalypse, Superman, Batman, Apocalypse, takes a step down. Just, and I think it, it owes a lot here to the color palette. The colors aren't as rich as you would see in Superman, Batman, Apocalypse. They're very Saturday morning colors. And the lumpy Frank Quietly thing kind of loses something. And we have Superman and Lois kissing on the moon. How precious. Actually, the scene worked in the comic, but when I saw it in the movie, I don't know. It felt like they were trying too hard. Oh, what would it be? What would be the repercussions of a, for a person psychologically to have this this great power for 24 hours and then never get to or seemingly never get to have it again would it become addictive and of course we have Lois not believing Superman actually is Clark Kent which wasn't far off from what we saw when she when he proposed to her and told her the truth she just grasped it a little bit quicker than this Lois oh he's tucking her in Come on, Superman, you can cop a feel. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know you were thinking it, though. I'm going to try to get a little bit more comfortable here. There we go. And yet, we've moved into yet another issue. Still not selling me on the Clark Kent thing the way Quietly's art did. And I, I'm... I'm I wouldn't call myself a Frank Quitely fan, but I'm not a detractor either. And once again, Superman saves Luthor. Now imagine this. It's something that's so downplayed here and in the comics. It comes down to the question of if you were able to go back in time to kill Hitler, would you? Superman had this choice where he could have let Luthor die. Wouldn't be killing him. It would have been Luthor kind of suffering from his own handiwork. So did Superman do the right thing by saving him? Maybe. It comes down to Superman really wanting to see the good in people, much like was kind of mentioned in uh, Public Enemy. Oh, in, in Apocalypse, sorry. Where even though I disagree that Batman is looking for bad in people, Superman more proactively looks for good. shorthand we are seeing a Luthor that's very physically fit too and Luthor starts trying to do the Hannibal Lecter the issue itself that this is taken from you, you didn't you barely saw Superman in costume and yet you had Luthor trying to scratch away at the surface of Clark Kent. And it was always 
ambiguous but implied that Luthor knew that Superman and Clark were the same person, which would make sense. Luthor would have probably figured that out before others. Whoa, 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 guys. I got this. And more than other places, Luthor is played a little bit more blatantly jealous. He's not. I don't know what it is. It just feels like this lacks the punch that the original issue did. And I don't know if I can lay that squarely on La Paglia and Ditton. Or if it's the animation. Or if it's just the pacing, maybe. And here we go. A cameo by Metallo for absolutely no reason at all. Didn't even bother casting a voice. He's just pumping iron. He's a robot. He doesn't need to pump iron. Which is a weird thing to criticize. Oh good, the parasite. Because we needed the parasite. And... It's ultra grimace, people. He's going to come after your milkshakes and your fries. All he has to do now is free his accomplice, Hamburglar, and the day is on. Another thing I liked about in the another thing I liked in the book that I didn't feel played out the right way. And I don't blame Pardon me. Whoa, whoa. I'm squeaking. I don't blame Dwayne McDuffie. Because as I mentioned, to try to collapse that 12-issue dense, dense series into a 76-minute film, I wouldn't want to be tasked with that. What do you cut out? What's... <laughs> How do you make this a, a ongoing narrative? And the fact is, they... I think it... The producers accepted, yeah, it's not going to be point A to point B completely. Just because if we want to be somewhat faithful and yet do our own thing, it just can't be. It's impossible. Which is valid. And then the riot starts which in the book felt more threatening. And I think that was because the book presented it as a cutaway. as kind of a massive cutaway where you could see all aspects of it. And this, you have multiple cuts, multiple angles. I don't know. It feels more claustrophobic than the book did. The book tried to do it as a big uh, sprawling piece. And once again, we're not seeing Superman in costume. We're seeing Clark Kent performing as Superman. Superman never actually even uh, appeared in the issue. By the way, he didn't get the gar- all the guards to safety in the book. Something that 
endured much criticism. I do like the thermal effects that works really, really well in the animation. This just moves so, so fast. Yeah, Luthor's in charge. You do lose the implication that I took from the book that Luthor actually engineered the entire riot. Because it's played less ambiguous of whether he knows Superman is Clark or Clark is Superman. And it's played more like he doesn't know at all. And... Yeah, follow the food source. I should have had... And, yeah, you just saw him smash through frozen prisoners. So, basically, Superman allowed them to die. Okay. Grimace wants your french fries. Bring Grimace your McDLT. Yeah, the parasite just didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I never bought that Lex wouldn't clue in that Clark's stomping was Superman level and caused an earthquake. But if it works, it works. And now we see Lex losing his crap, but it was done so much better in the comic. You don't feel the level of anger and just the raw, psychotic nature of his freakout. Until you get there when he segues down. he's all ang- It's just the anger part didn't work, so the segue to the calmer, more casual Lex just didn't. I don't know, it just didn't work. And I shouldn't be just sitting here criticizing the movie because I couldn't have done better. I always enjoyed the sonic drill aspect of the Bibliobot. You'd think if Lex didn't know, he would have... Lex isn't an idiot. He should have caught on to some of this. And in the book, it was played, you know, once again, it was played as if he might actually know. And he might just be messing with Superman's head. And that's, that's you know, he's, you know, what he's saying here, I, I poisoned him with solar rays. I'm gonna, He's telling Superman exactly what he did it plays much better with that ambiguity i miss it quite a bit actually and here was an imagery that i thought was excellent um and it actually does play out fairly well linda cardellini plays his niece. Um, she was Velma in Scooby-Doo. That's probably, and she was on ER at one point. 
And the the thing I like about this, especially this shot right here, where we actually get the the wide pan and the, and she is ferrying him away, is it calls back to Charon going across the river Styx. And we skip Bizarro. We skip Superman being Doomsday, which... Okay, the Superman Doomsday thing is fine. Most of the issues focused on his supporting cast. So you had the Lois issue. You had a Jimmy issue. You had you know the one we just saw would have been the Lex. Superman basically settling his accounts. Which is something that's lost in this translation. Because it it comes down to the condensate, the condensing of the story. Once again, I don't blame McDuffie. He really did do well with what he was with the edict he was given. Take this sprawling vignette infused story, make it a seventy six minute feature. I don't think we even get all of the we don't we don't get all of the the labors. Okay, yeah, I was about to say we can't have children. I can't knock you up. I just don't like the way the cape bunches up in the back. I never have. And the way it droops over the shoulders. It doesn't quite sell Superman for me. But then again, it comes back to... This isn't a traditional Superman. It just takes essences of traditional Supermans in the past. I'm a big, big defender of All-Star Superman. There are a lot of people who will criticize the the miniseries or the, the series, but I think it told a really well-structured story that kind of gave Grant Morrison a chance to capture his thoughts on Superman in a way that his Action Comics run really hasn't, even though what he, based on what Grant Morrison has said, that the... The Superman he presents in Action Comics is the same Superman that we see in All-Star Superman. And here would be where Superman would be returning from Bizarro World. So there was a whole segment cut out, which is fine. It wasn't necessary. I get omitting Bizarro. Um, I'm not entirely cool... Well, it makes sense to not go back to the Jonathan Kent death. Even though that was really one of the most emotional issues of the series. There is one big omission that was one of my biggest, biggest disappointments in this movie. And that's one I... I will kind of perhaps put on Dwayne McDuffie. And I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but... Oh, I see Jim Gordon is in the Daily Planet staff. Oh... 
I was I was kind of dismayed that they included the Barrel and Lilo or Lilo segment. Mainly because that was just my least favorite part of the the miniseries. I mean it's just a personal preference. It wasn't uh, anything too terribly <laughs> too terribly out of character for that. So the casting though was excellent. We have Arnold Vuzlu of Oslo, who was the mummy, and he was also Black Adam in Superman Shazam First Thunder, or Return of Black Adam, sorry. And then we have Fanola Hughes, who actually has a comic book uh actually both of them have comic book pedigrees, because Arnold Vosloo was also Zartan in G.I. Joe the Rise of Cobra. And Fanola Hughes played the White Queen in that wonderful, excellent Generation X movie. That was wonderful and excellent in the way that you think, you know, nothing is. It was pretty terrible. Could have played out well, and I think I wish... I wish I could go back and watch that. I don't know if it's on DVD. Because maybe, re, you know, with a little bit of a better budget, the reinterpretation could have worked. But I'm not doing a commentary on Generation X. Oh... With animation, when you're dealing with sound and motion, things like the, um, handing the key to the robot so it knocks the robot's arm off, which played in the very background of the actual comic, suddenly become a little bit more attention-grabbing. And they kind of... kind of It's like explaining a joke. It kind of loses some of its punch. Oh, we, we changed the statues, but we're going to keep the Titanic. And the space shuttle, which I assume is Columbia. Oh, good. The Phantom Zone. And I always thought Arnold Vosloo had a natural accent. I've never heard him speak in interviews, now that I think about it. I mean, he was the mummy, but he was speaking in, in a foreign language. As Black Adam, he had an accent. I mean, really, we could have saved quite a bit of time just by skipping this. One of the defenses somebody made about including it is it does show Superman's compassion. And my argument to that comes a little bit later... In an omitted scene that was my favorite scene in the entire miniseries. Bar none. So I think we could have actually... Probably taken out a good ten minutes of this. And done the same thing in all of a minute and a half. Matthew Gray Goobler... How many alum have we had? We've had, from CSI, we've had Greg Goobler, Mark Harmon. I think that's the main cast. We have, we'll see Polly Perrette next week in Superman vs. the Elite. But when you've got a great cast, you know, why, why waste it? Oh, uh, yeah. Now, the scene well, here and in the comics, 
one of the only saving graces that I really did like about the Barrel and Lilo scene was not only did it play a Superman 2 type of scenario, it also played a little bit like uh, pardon me, a little bit like uh, for the man, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, sorry. Yeah, and I'm just going to run right into the ground. Uh, I just really wish they had chosen a different segment to include. I just, this I have so little to say on this. <laughs> And I get, I get that this is the reverse of Jor-El and Lara. That we have Kal-El who is younger, than, the, assumptively younger than Bar-El and Milo. Seeing that not the planet dying, but they are dying. Sending them, sending a couple away to save them. I get the inverse. I just don't dig it. Well, yeah, this is good. This is good podcasting, folks. Me just waiting for this scene to get over with. Luckily, unlike the comic where it was bi-monthly and you were waiting 60 days between issues, and this was the, the issue that came out, this is mercifully quick, so. And feel free to disagree with me. I'm just giving you my opinion. Ah, they in love. And there we go. Shutting off the Phantom Zone projector and done. We're done. Forgiveness. Okay, great. <laughs> He's reading, mixing the, perf the perfect hot cocktail. And Superman calling Lex out on his crap. And I'm glad they kept this as intact as they did. Yeah, I'm going to spit at this. I'm a hypocrite. At least... At least we got a scene with him saying goodbye to Jonathan Kitt, which ties into... One of my favorite issues, uh, well, an issue that means a lot to me, which is where they he got to go back and say goodbye to his pa. It also created an odd paradox, but Ma Kent, voiced by Francis Conroy, who was on a show called Dead, not Dead Like Me, that's a different one, Six Feet Under, and she was also in that wonderful, wonderful, epic, Oscar-worthy movie Catwoman starring Halle Berry. Oh, wait. 
it's more worthy of just peeing on the print, but... Aww. And this was a scene that really wasn't in the comic. Actually, I don't think you saw Ma Kent at all. Grant Morrison's really keen on keeping the the Elder Kents dead. I do really like it, though. I think this was a good addition. And punctual. Or punctual, wow. And brief. Yeah. We going into the third act now. Fasten your seatbelts. Lex Luthor is. He's got a seatbelt for his arms and his legs and his head. Oh, wait. That can't be good. See, for as much as Lex has planned this out, Superman not being there was not apparently part of it. Well, that's just a little bit disturbing. I just hear Mar from Sin City saying, Is that all you got? Oh. I have heat vision. Heat vision's cool. You realize he just blasted somebody in the face with heat vision, right? I mean, we just saw that. Ooh, it even bounces off his teeth. That'll save on dental bills. Aww. There wa- I really kind of wish they had left the scene of him saying goodbye to the Sun Eater. Which was actually quite sad because as he releases it, it comes back to him. And sets it up. Sets up a scene later even better. Yes, we have the large journal. Silver Age style. Even though we saw in Bronze Age they added a computer that would actually do this for him. Which is kind of using it. He's using a little headset. Pete, Lana, and Jimmy, which weren't even seen briefly. Oh, it's all about love. Take off my shirt to make the women swoon. Hi. Park Avenue address? I'm sorry, there's just something not quite... It felt like the way Grant Morrison wrote Lex Luthor was this controlled, manic psychopath genius. That he's so intelligent that morality is beneath him. And while he's struck, he's constantly in control of his environment, he's not necessarily, he's always on the verge of just losing his crap. Yeah, just the voice cast was off in all respects, except for Ed Asner. Ed Asner was the bomb. 
And how did we get to a red sun? Friends in high places. He's like the opposite of Garth Brooks. And we had a setup in the book to this final showdown that we are missing here. And we have a Battle of the Planets uniform. Except for the one of you that betrays us. Judas. Wait, wait, did we work out which one's staying behind? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the Battle for the Planets uniform as a as a replacement, but here kind of fun in the context. Yeah, the Tyrant Sun. That's exciting. It just felt more threatening in the book, and it was set up so far in advance. Now, this scene is actually... Well, it doesn't have the excitement that the book did. Seeing the robots just crash makes me think of their... It's like they're rushing at the Death Star. Luke, at that speed, do you think we can pull out in time? And yeah, the Tyrant Sun was set up just enough that it didn't give me that Grant Morrison self-indulgence vibe. Oh. Robot 7 betrayed you. Why'd it have to be number 7? Wouldn't it have been cooler if it was 13? Oh, that's actually a really, that's a moment that I really did like. I just wish Solaris as the computer generated, oh, sorry about that, bumped the mic, as computer generated as he is, doesn't work for me. Oh yeah, we're going to throw a sun eater at you. That's how he rolls. He's going to do great things. He's going to defeat you. He's going to defeat you. The Sun Eater is going to eat the sun. And, uh... Well... Then an awkward thing happens. And the Sun Eater dies. Which... Actually upset me in the book a little bit. Just because of the goodbye scene. Where Superman releases it out into space. And the Sun Eater tries to come back like a sad little puppy. Which... Removing it from this makes that sacrifice not not as endearing. Oh. And right in here is where they roughly omitted one of my favorite scenes. And I'll start talking about that as we get to this climax here. The scene that I miss so much was the suicidal girl who... Because of some of Lex Luthor and, and his niece's shenanigans, gets delayed on a on a train. 
So she is on the verge of jumping off. He's, she's suicidal. She's going to jump off of the building and kill herself. And Superman shows up just in time and says, no, no, he really did get delayed. You are cared for. And, and I'm really underselling that scene. My favorite scene in the whole book says exactly what I think should be said about Superman. And here's the opposite end of the spectrum where he quite blatantly kills the son. Now, in in the book, you had a setup where it mentions that the tyrant son is resurrected down the road somehow. So when he blasted, he simply says, you'll live. Here, he's just cold-heartedly killing something. So we remove the suicidal girl, Reagan, which shows Superman's absolute compassion that he will stop in the midst of all of this to you know, help this girl convince her not to kill herself. And then we, instead we get Barrel and Lilo and then we get him blatantly killing the tyrant son. Um, the tyrant son isn't Zod and his cronies like we saw in the, in the comics. And we, I don't know. It just bothers me that I feel like that, the omission of that line in that scene removes kind of a chunk of the heart of the story. I quite like what Frank Quitely did with Lex Luthor's outfit, giving him kind of the long coat and tails. There wasn't enough of a material here to kind of play with, but the theory was that Leo Quintum and Lex Luthor were one and the same. That Quintum was a future version of Lex Luthor who was able to regrow his hair and had a similar jacket. I don't know. I halfway buy in, halfway don't. Or maybe he's the the other, the real mirror reflection of Luthor. Ah, double cross. Whenever villains team up, there's always a double cross. You want to act up against the most powerful man on Earth? Boy, I do. Just imagine Harry Carey as Superman in that scene. Would you eat the moon if it was made out of spare rib? Some of the oomph was just taken out of this. Felt like the fight was more intense in the comic. And I know there's that theory that, you know, the book is always better than the movie or the source material is always better than the adaptation. I don't necessarily believe that's an absolute. So wait, you're telling me Lois really didn't believe up until this point? I thought she had accepted it. So now we get the final throwdown. Which is kind of what you wait for. You know, villain, Imano Amano. Wow, every now and then Luthor just looks like he will. He, came, he stepped out of Super, uh, Super Friends. Oh, he ain't heavy. He's my villain.
Ah, fleas. I don't know. I wonder if just a mild bit of recasting would have sold these scenes a little bit better. Like maybe if we had Tim Daly as Superman or George Newbern and we had Clancy Brown as Luthor and Dana Delaney returning as Lois Lane, which she hasn't done. Of course, Lois hasn't had much of a part, but we've had Polly Perrette. We had Kyra Sedgwick for a brief moment. I'm trying to think of her name. Anne Heche in Superman Doomsday. And soon we're going to have uh, Stana Kattuk as Lois in Superman Unbound, which has a cast that I'm extremely excited about. And here's, okay, I guess I jumped ahead. Here's the train that I was referring to that gets delayed. And the girl's psychiatrist is supposed to be on it, which delays him for their appointment, which leads him, Superman, to talking the girl down from the ledge, which was cannibalized less convincingly in J. Michael Straczynski's, I believe it was his first issue of Grounded, maybe second. And for some reason, even though he's not touching the stairs, Luthor is walking. Weird. wonder if that's something that they did as him adjusting to the powers. Or if the animation's really just, you know, he's walking on air. Okay. That's kind of a weird detail. I don't know if they were trying to say something about the adjustment of a human to their powers, but... It is what it is. And here is the defeat. Oh, Lex got into the blue acid again. Oh. And he starts touching people Lex got into the rave stuff that Lois he was probably at the same rave just different night Luthor's you know walks into the office starts tasting the carpet I don't know I Lapaglia really just doesn't sell the emotion that's behind this this moment of of revelation in the comic really was the the complete opposite of the Lex we saw all the way up to this point where he was pretty emotionless except for anger and avarice here's where he understood something and where the voice cast of of uh, Superman Batman Apocalypse really played with the nuances I don't think we had that the voice cast necessarily had the chance to do so here because it was so rushed there was so much material to plug in there and it ended up being just on the nature of the original story it ended up being just a lackluster lackluster entry to be honest and I've basically been sitting here blasting this it's just, it feels laborious to watch it. And it has its enjoyable elements, 
but it doesn't have the humor that you saw, you know, in Superman, Batman, Apocalypse, or Public Enemy, Enemies. And what should be, you know, the goodbye here of Lois and Superman, what should be an extremely emotional scene, what really worked in the comic, just falls completely flat. So yeah, I've basically been sitting here just tearing this movie apart the whole time. I kind of feel bad. And I didn't know... I, I, I didn't rewatch this prior to sitting down to do the commentary because I would rather do my honest, um, you know, on-the-spot opinion rather than a, a more thought-out because that's the difference between a commentary and just kind of really doing a synopsis and notes version is you're getting a more honest, more on the spot feel and in the moment feel. So where I basically ended up praising, you know, the, the last two, this one, a uh, little bit trickier to watch. It is what it is. And there've been far worse entries. I'd rather watch this, uh, than watch Batman Gotham Knight, And not because Batman, I don't like Batman because I do like Batman. It just, it feels like the script itself is fine. As I mentioned, Dwayne McDuffie going up against these insurmountable odds. Dwayne McDuffie did fine putting all this in one spot with the, with the exception of the two omissions I talked about, you know, the line saying you'll live and which even out of context of not having the background would have been fine. And the Reagan scene where I, I just think, well, maybe three things because we, you know, the you'll live line Reagan scene and then taking out Barrel and Lilo. And it could have actually shaved off about six minutes. I don't know what you would have put in place as far as the omissions outside of the Reagan scene. We had, I think most of the stuff that was the full issue, the doomsday stuff, maybe give Jimmy a little something to do, but probably not. That really wasn't much to chew on and here we have Luthor giving us the haiku he talked about it wasn't as blatant that Luthor had a conversion um, following his run in with Superman and I kind of wish they had kept that in intact where we see Luthor have his moment and realize his mistake. And I wish we had left Luthor. But, unfortunately, the reason for this scene being here, the reason it makes sense is somebody has to explain what is the next step in this world without a Superman. And really, we didn't get much of an explanation of Quintum and his world Oh, wow. I like that Luthor really is such a genius level intellect that could have been doing this the whole time. And and, and we're probably, you know, we assume he's going to be executed properly or successfully after this. So he could, he's realizing, oh, wow, I could have brought so much to the world. 
it's kind of the realization we also saw in the Black Ring saga. No, actually, I'll take that back. He actually didn't have that same realization. He never quite got it. And we don't get the cool number two in the shield. Uh, And we get this one still shot that actually... That's straight up quietly artwork, isn't it? We're just going to show you this scan. We put it on the Xerox machine. There we go. Put it in the movie. Well, the credits look cool. Yeah, I know. Uh, as we're coming to the end, I realize how much I really did bash this movie. And the thing is, going into it, I remembered liking All-Star Superman. And when I go through it with the somewhat critical mind, it just doesn't hold up to the quality of some of the other movies. I mean, you put in Justice League Crisis on Two Earths. You put in New Frontier. You can put in a lot of different movies where the animation quality was better. The voice acting was top-notch. And I think I think it does come down to the directing and the production. Script was fine. But the voice acting was just off. And Andrea Romano knows better. She's done some excellent casting choices in the past. And graphic novel, it was not. Let me take a moment to rant on that. I'm tired of comic book series or miniseries being referenced as a graphic novel. Yes, I'll admit that All-Star Superman had a beginning, middle, and end. But it was across 12 issues. It's a monthly issues. It wasn't intended to be a graphic novel. To me, a graphic novel is something where you actually want to put this out in a single volume. It's intended to be read as a single volume. Because a novel is indeed a single volume normally. You may have different different um, sequels or even continuations. Um, look at the Harry Potter series. Yes, it's intended to be a series. But each novel can be read independently. It's a point A to point B. Where I don't see a lot of what's being referenced pretentiously as graphic novels being that. This was a 12-issue miniseries. It was, that's what it was. It was just an, a comic book. And for some reason to sell, to sell movies and, and things and to sell the, the medium to adults that wouldn't normally look at it, they're really working a little, they're bending over backwards to try to pre- make it pretentious. And there's nothing wrong with a comic book being a comic book. There's nothing wrong with a comic book movie being a comic book movie. But that was my little, my little rant amongst many in this episode. So it looks like we're going to be, I'm going to be bringing this to a close here as we're coming to the end of the credits. Not, uh, not the best outing as far as animated movies. As usual, I mean, if you do agree, email me at mail at supermanforever.com. But we're coming to the end of the credits, which means we're coming to the end of the episode next week. A much better entry, I hope. Superman versus the Elite. Another one I haven't watched since it came out. Let's hope I'm kinder to it. Until then, I'm J. David Weeder. Keep on fighting the never-ending battle. This has been Superman Forever Radio, a NatWorld production. You can find the show on iTunes with backlogs of episodes, where you can also leave a review. The show finds its home at supermanforever.com, and is a very proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. You can friend the show on Facebook at, at facebook.com slash supermanforeverradio. 
and email the show at mail at supermanforever.com. David can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash superdaveweeder. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not gain profit from the images or related properties belonging to DC Comics or Warner Brothers Entertainment. Superman and all related characters, the distinctive likenesses thereof, are all properties of Warner Brothers Entertainment and DC Entertainment. All music and sound clips used on the show are copyright their respective owners and no infringement is intended. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. 